I read one of the best books I've ever read uh, while I was away last week. And specifically, the book was about um, was about gender. But what made it a good book was not just what he had to say about gender. It was just one of the most thoughtful, thorough books I've ever read. And um, it's not just... I mean, it's one of those books where he touches on so many things you could publish chapters on their own, and they were great essays on almost every topic. That's how thorough he was. He just covered every base. Um, but it got me thinking a lot about... Um, first, obviously, about men, and then more deeply, one of the arguments he makes is that the the tensions we feel in modern society with the biblical gender roles, a lot of that has to do with the fact that those things were lived out very naturally in community. And with a technological society, a lot of what makes community community in biblical times just falls by the wayside. And so I couldn't walk away from the book without thinking deeply about what it means to be a church community and therefore our, our role as, as men in that context. And so this morning I wanted to look at three places where Paul identifies himself in his relationship with uh, other men in his life, in its relationship with the church churches that he planted, um, identifies himself as a father. Um, and it's, it's a surprisingly good window into answering the question, what is a father? But I recognize that many of you don't have biological children, but neither did Paul. And by, by looking at his understanding, um, not only do you see a window into fatherhood, but you see a window into relationships as they were designed to work um, in the church at large and in the context of of the men of the church. And so I just wanted to walk through those texts this morning and and take a closer look. Um, fatherhood is an ideal of manhood. It may not be the only one. Um, there are other pictures and pointers, but it is it is one of them. And uh, And so for some of us, we need to recognize and aspire as we are right now towards these things. For others of us, though, we need to recognize uh, that there's an other, other half to this relationship. And so the emphasis this morning may not be um, understanding uh, this ideal for yourself, but recognizing your need for it in your life. Um, and it's worth pointing out that the way biblically um, the Bible talks about fathers and sons, that's not one half of people and the other half of people. That's not some men are fathers and other men are sons. The recognition both in family is that all fathers are sons. Uh, and then in the church, there's a recognition that there are father figures in your life and there are people who are, are uh, sons in your lives. And so this isn't necessarily an either-or scenario. Today, though, for for us uh, as individuals, it may be a place of emphasis of where we're at right now. And I want to reiterate again that that Paul was not a biological father, and so this is not something that's limited to something that happens in your own family. Um, and the reason that is the case is because the Bible envisions the church as a new family, 
Jesus talked about those who would lose husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and walk away from them and in the kingdom of God receive a hundredfold. In other words, the new church is supposed to be a family for those who don't have family, a family for those who are distant from their family, a family within the context of the body of Christ. That's why in Titus, Paul encourages, or uh, <coughs> actually I believe it's in Timothy, one of the pastorals, he encourages either Titus or Timothy to, um, to behave in the body of Christ as if it were a family. And so he says, treat the older men like fathers, the younger men like brothers, treat the older women like mothers and the younger women like sisters. That's his paradigm for the relationship in the church. And so that's where I want the focus to, to be this morning. And the first place I want to look is actually in 1 Thessalonians. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is one of the best places to turn to understand the, the heart of the ministry. How Paul saw himself as a church planter, as a pastor, um, as somebody who is discipling. Interestingly enough, he doesn't just compare himself to a father here, but a few verses prior, he compares himself to a mother. Um, but nonetheless, I wanted to to focus on, um, ver- well, we'll pick up in verse 9 for context, but this is in chapter 2. For remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you as believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so here, Paul's reminding them of how he behaved while he was living in Thessalonica, how he behaved um, in the beginnings of planting this church before he had to move on. And he says that even they know that he behaved like a father with his children. And he points to three realities in that in verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. And so the the first recognition here that I want to make is that there is a verbal aspect to the relationships of discipleship in the men of the church. And like I said, this, this role of father uh, is broader than just a men's and son's relationship. Although we'll see that oftentimes that particular relationship comes out in the imagery. We'll see that in another one of the passages. And so this role of fatherhood that he's talking about applies to the women in our church as well. But I want you to notice that um, he makes basically three statements about how that fatherhood, how that relationship manifested verbally um, exhorted, encouraged, and charged. Um, So exhorted and encouraged are often in the New Testament handled as a pair. They're they're complementary. They're similar and yet different. You need both uh, or or your verbal presence is lopsided. Um, to, To encourage, in fact, the word that's used here Um, specifically means to bring comfort. In fact, he uses it in chapter 5 to say, comfort the faint-hearted. And so the idea here is a recognition um, that oftentimes we as human beings encounter weakness. 
encounter difficulty. We find the burden in our life too much to bear, the pain in our life too difficult. Um, this idea of, of comfort or encouragement is very different than the, the suck it up of machismo that we sometimes associate with a man's role in another man's life. Um, it involves here, uh, like I said, encouragement. But I think even that can be misunderstood because in the modern world, oftentimes encouragement means to massage the ego. Encouragement is directly rooted in telling people how great they are, that they're good enough, that they can handle this, etc. Um, and that paradigm just doesn't fit a Christian paradigm. Uh, the Bible's essence of what's wrong with humanity is that we're not enough. What God is raising up in men will never be the epitome of independence, but always a great dependence, right? And so you look, you look at David, and David is not a man's man or a man after man's own heart. He's a man after God's own heart. And when his leadership is contrasted with King Saul, who came before, one of the great emphases is that David was constantly inquiring of the Lord. When you read the Psalms and you look at his relationship with God, it's one of tremendous dependence. But not only do you see that relationship in David with God, but you also see it with other men. David was uh, very close to other men. He had advisors and he had soldiers and they had a close relationship with him. He had Jonathan, whose relationship was so close he valued it over any relationship he'd ever had with a woman. And so there were close and deep relationships. And so um, encouragement, then, is not about expressing another person's independence or massaging their ego or assuaging their self-esteem. Um, I think one of the places where it's best illustrated is in Acts chapter 11. Um, as you may or may not know, one of the major players in the New Testament is given a new name, and the name is Barnabas. And Barnabas literally means the son of encouragement. It's what he was known for. It's what he did all the time. We see him in the act. We catch him red-handed, if you will, in the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 11. Uh, verse 23 says this, When he, Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And so here, um, let's see. Um, it says here that he saw the grace of the Lord. Um, it also says that he exhorted, and I told you these two two halves tend to go together. We'll get to exhortation in a second. Um, but what he verbalizes in, in them steadfastly remaining faithful to God, and then you couple that with seeing God's grace, there's this recognition and um, that encouragement is rooted not in who we are as men, but who God is to men. And that's, that's the point that I wanted to make. That encouragement is not rooted in you can do it, but God is faithful. And... I think all of us recognize how, not merely as men, but just as human beings, how we need that constant reminder. And Paul, by speaking to the Thessalonians in this way, is reiterating the fact that that's, uh, that's an aspect of 
fatherhood. Um, that basically, basically we're to train up those we see as sons, whether biologically or in the Lord, as Paul did with the Thessalonians, um, in seeing and believing the grace of God in recognizing um, their own need for God and operating from a place of dependence. Um, exhortation, as I said, is the other side of encouragement. And so encouragement or comfort um, is, is about filling in the greater truths. Like, yes, your circumstances are difficult. Yes, you have these personal weaknesses. Yes, things are wrong. But God, and filling out the larger truth. Um, exhortation has to do with the other thing we see Barnabas doing, which is calling them to be faithful to which they were called. Exhortation um, is, is encouraging people to do what they're called to do. It's, um, it's the speeches we love uh, at the end of great action films, right? Uh, in, in Braveheart, in Independence Day, um, in, in so many of these films. Exhortation... Uh, means to exhort, to say, let's do it, to um, you know, call to the field. But it's worth mentioning that the word is deeper uh, than that. And there's, in those action films, always a piece missing that's super important, um, which, is, uh, which is that those people never do it over a megaphone from the back lines. Right? Those speeches aren't encouragement uh, you know, that's been prepackaged from some safe bunker. These are men from the front lines. Uh, and the word here for encouragement uh, or for exhortation is parakaleo. Uh, it's it, as a noun, one that's used for the Holy Spirit when he is called the comforter. Um, the word, when it's put together, means to come alongside. Okay, And so it's not so much uh, you must do this as we're going to do this together. Exhortation involves this emphasis of togetherness um, and, and maybe is best expressed in the idea of leaving no man behind. Right? That's, that's what this word expresses. The last verbal thing we see here about, um, about fatherhood and how it operates in relationships uh, is the word charge. And charges, like encouragement and exhortation, they're all very closely related concepts. Uh, intriguingly, this word and its root is where we get our word for martyr. Okay, And so it has this idea of witness when it's used in other ways or to testify. Sometimes it's translated to urge. Um, but to charge here recognizes that what it means to be a man comes with responsibility. And to charge means to commit them to fulfill that responsibility. It has a, a future orientation where as encouragement and exhortation have to do with the present, charge is something you do um, at a graduation ceremony, right? Charge is something you do as you're passing the baton on to the next generation. Charge is something to do recognizing that sons become fathers. And so there's a verbal aspect of this, and, and just, just to be frank, in, in a world like ours, um, these aspects of fatherhood are often missing. You know, think of the paradigms of American fatherhood. Not so much right now, because frankly, I have no idea what our modern paradigm of American fatherhood is. But the remnants of last generations and the generations prior are still there, and it's it's the strong and silent, right? It's the it's the uh, unspoken uh, 
masculinity um, that that doesn't talk, you know, and um, within within the church, I've observed that, um, and I don't think any of us would deny um, that for whatever reason, there's a longing for this type of verbal affirmation, for this type of recognition. Um, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing the last generation. I don't really know the cause of it. I just know the desire is there. I can remember an occasion with, um, with the last pastor that I worked with. I was in an interesting situation in that church because most of my peers, the other people on staff at the church, the other ones who were being actively raised up as the next generation, were his biological sons. Um, and so that was an interesting paradigm. And it was very easy for, for my insecurities to come to the foreground because of the uniqueness of that position. I always felt second string. I always felt like an exception. And there was an, uh, uh, a season there where um, he had made some decisions, uh, and the only way I could read them was that he believed in his boys more than he did me. There were a thousand other ways I could have read those circumstances, but I couldn't shake the possibility of that one. And pretty soon it became a filter. And every decision he made, that was, that was my understanding of what was going on. Um, and so I pulled him aside at a conference, and I, I just said, honestly, I said, look, I don't think it's necessarily right for me to ask you to do this. I'm not even sure that it should be necessary but I'm telling you that everything you do right now is skewed from this perception, right or wrong, and I just need you to tell me what you see in me. And I told him this with tears in my eyes, which is not a common um, an emotional expression for me. Um, and, and what he did was basically just this. He, he encouraged, he exhorted, and he charged me. Um, and all I'll say is this component is so important we notice when it's missing. We may not notice that this is what we need, uh, but we notice the need. And so, you know, my, um, my heart for us as a community, and once again, not just for us as men to men, but also as, as men to the women in our church, um, is that we would understand that fatherhood means the verbalization of God's goodness, um, the verbalization of we're going to do this together, you know, um, pick up your swords, and the verbalization of future responsibility. Um, but that being said, Paul's understanding of fatherhood is, is deeper than just, just words. And it's really important to understand that. We've already seen some highlights of it, but it's easier to see in the other passages where he talks about these things. Um, and so let's, let's turn to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Corinthians, Paul's relationship with the church is already becoming somewhat strained. By 2 Corinthians, it's, it's hit, it's gone nuclear. It's very problematic. 
Um, but you can see pieces of it in, in 1 Corinthians. And here, he's trying to remind them of his unique relationship with the church. There are many other men that the Corinthians can respect, can hear from, can listen to, can hold in high regard. But Paul's relationship is unique, and he unpacks it in this same concept of fatherhood. He says this in chapter 4, verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And so he, he makes a contrast here. He says, look, you have many advisors in Christ. You have many counselors. You have many teachers. You have many voices that should be part of the input. And he says, but you don't have many fathers. And it's, it's worth recognizing here, especially to supplement to what we just read, um, that fatherhood, as we're talking about, can't happen in a podcast. That Paul's unique distinguishing mark here is inherently relational. That's implied in the word father. And so we don't need just solid teaching. And to be honest, I have learned after years and years of trying and wishing it were otherwise um, that books aren't enough to live life. And that the, um, the great writings of great men doesn't inherently produce great men. It's, that's just not how it's set up to work. And what Paul points out here is that there is a relational component to pastoral ministry. Um, and that shouldn't be really surprising because when, uh, when Paul writes to Timothy to explain what types of, type of men make good pastors, he effectively says good fathers. And so there's a correlation here. But the recognition that he makes here is that we need these closer relationships. And then he unpacks another aspect of what fatherhood means in verse 16. Notice he says, I urge you then, or I urge you therefore. Why? What, what is the basis of what he's about to say? Because of this relationship of a father with his children. I urge you therefore, be imitators of me. And so he emphasizes here the imitation aspect of fatherhood. You don't need to turn there, but this is a common illustration of what it means to be a father in the New Testament. And so, for example, in the book of Ephesians, it looks at the fatherhood of God in just this way. And it says this in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Right? Why should we imitate God? Because we are his children. And there's a sense where I think, for better or for worse, we already recognize the symptom of this in our biological relationship with our dads. Right? There, there's just this thing that we have certain mannerisms, uh, certain ways of speaking that are directly related to our parents. And it's not uncommon to see a child, even at the toddler level, who's picked up the idiosyncrasies of, of his parents. Um, we can miss, though, how much deeper this is uh, in Paul's time. Because this didn't just involve... Um, your idiosyncrasies and your values and your figures of speeches and your dad jokes or these types of things. Uh, it also involved your entire career, right? In, in, in Jewish culture, in Paul's day, almost guaranteed your future line of work was determined by your father's line of work. 
even when there was an exception. If you learned a different trade, you'd usually learn it with another man in your extended family, your uncle, you know, your cousin twice removed or whatever. Um, but it was still in the same way. You know, with the industrialization that came with most of, of the modern world, we transitioned from men working at home in their shop to men leaving their house and working somewhere else. It bifurcated the experience we have of our fathers in a tremendous way. There's a Wonder Years episode where it talks about tiptoeing around dad when he got home from work and how he was always just boiling right at the surface and so you just let him sit in front of his TV, you didn't bring him any bad news and what happens is um, he ends up taking his son to work and he sees how he's treated all day and he gets this new perspective for what his dad goes through. And it's not a bad episode but it does demonstrate one of the great flaws of, uh, of modern manhood which is that a lot of times as children we get the worst our dads are not the best, right? We don't get to see them hands-on at the things, you know, that they make a living with and these types of things. That wasn't true in Paul's day. And so imitation um, has, has the idea of, of bringing a son alongside and, and demonstrating to them the whole aspects of what it means to be a carpenter, what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a father, um, in other words, to move away from the word that's called for kids to imitate, obviously the complementary word for fathers is example. Right? And this is one of the missing components that you can't get from a podcast. You can't get from a sports celebrity. You know, I think even now we recognize the significance of this because we still hear expressed in the mouths of children, at least in Hollywood. Like I said, maybe this is a dead thing and it's just memories of the past, but I want to be just like Blink when I grow up. Right? And so what it means then to, to be a father and what we need uh, for us and to be for others in the context of our church and in the context of this community of men um, is to, to be an example. And that really involves two pretty self-evident things. One means you have to live as if there's an audience. And the other means you have to bring people in to a front row seat, right? The idea of example and imitation implies both that you're doing something, recognizing that people should and could learn from it, and that you're bringing people close enough so that they can actually do that. This is a, a lighthearted illustration, but just as an aside. Um, <clears throat> one of the churches I was involved with had a a singles ministry that had gone I'll use the word stale um, there this had become a community of people who were no longer marriable um, and, and not in the sense that they had just aged out um, but but the, the problem is lots of single ministries go that way because because what single people need most is to learn how to be married people. And when your entire peer group is made up of singles, you just get reinforced in your singleness. Now, that's an oversimplification. That's why I said it's a lighthearted illustration. Um, but the body of Christ is made to work in diversity. 
Paul says later on in this letter that no one can say to anyone in the church, I have no need of you. That the differences in the body of Christ are strengths. Um, and one of the places where that serves us is in this, in this recognition um, that, that effectively we need examples to be who we should be, can be, will one day be, however you want to think of it. And so, um, here's a recognition that I'm making. I can look around the room and I can assume that not all of your biological fathers are living. I can assume that not all of your biological fathers live anywhere nearby. I know that being a church in the city means a lot of times the people who live in our city are like Cain. They've blown it with their family and they've gone to the city to start a new community, right? I, I know that those paradigms exist. And so for us, this becomes all the more important because it's supplemental. We need father figures in our life, not just because we have some sort of you know, broken heart that needs to be mended or anything like this, but because, because examples is inherently built into how we learn. Jesus' ministry was built on this principle, right? He didn't just take the disciples into the wilderness and give them a three-year seminary. He said, come and be with me, and then I will send you. He showed, he did, he invited them into doing, he corrected and explained. Um, that's where this idea of imitation comes to. In fact, the word disciple implies it. Do you know what the difference between a student and a disciple is? I'm talking about in the original concept from the Greek language. A student studies a subject. A disciple studies a master. The difference involves this idea of example. It involves more than just curriculum. The relationships of men in the church can't be reduced down to that ridiculous idiom about the professor who translates the contents of his notes into the notepad of his students without it passing through the mind of either. It's something that's much deeper than that. It's something that's supposed to be relational. And so what I'm implying and what I'm urging us towards is a relationship with one another that brings us into one another's lives so that there's the potential for examples. The single men in our church need to spend more time with the married men in our church, not just as married men, but in the context of their household. When I first became a Christian, one of the things that was seared into me deeper than any other was a particular relationship I had with my pastor. It was a small church, and I was trying to date his daughter, and that made very close, care, uh, close um, quarters for our relationship. I spent a lot of time in his house. Some of who I am today is permanently wired from just that short six-month period. I remember on one particular occasion, I was standing in his kitchen talking with his wife. He was just passing through, and I just finished a Pepsi, crushed the can, and the trash was relatively full. This is Yakima. We didn't recycle. Uh, <laughs> the trash was relatively full, and so I just pushed the trash down with the can. And he laid his hand on my shoulder and he said, Justin, if you want to have a servant's heart, you have to pray for a servant's eyes. And he handed me the trash. And that was not the end, but the beginning of starting to recognize um, that service begins with noticing what needs to be done. And I'll never forget it. And I could tell you similar stories about my father, but I chose that one because 
that's what Tony was to me. Even though he didn't believe or have great hope in who I would become and was pretty sure I was a snake, um, and I was, um, he still made a tremendous impact on me. And, and I found in him an unwillingness to give up on me and yet an unwillingness to let me remain as I was. Which now I've come to understand is just biblically what love is. Love doesn't leave us and love doesn't leave us alone. But part of what made that so powerful was not just the things that he said in his sermon, not just conversations we had, you know, in particular meetings, but that it happened in the context of his house. He didn't have any sons, but he taught me how to be a son, how to take out the trash. You know, it's a small thing, but the principle is not. It's worth pointing out, too, that this imitation, you know, for Paul, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's a principle that goes very broadly in the way that Christianity, as a contagion, is passed on and developed in another generation or another another person in the context of discipleship. But it's worth mentioning that there's something that God the Father never exemplifies that we as men must. And this is something that's become especially important to me with my biological kids, but I think it's also true in general. That if we're going to be an example worth imitating as sinful men, that means one of the places where we have to exemplify is in repentance. Right? Which is unique. Jesus never exemplified repentance. Submission, which is at the heart of repentance, that was his entire life. Right? Surrender, that was in his entire entire life. Um, but when we imitate the fatherhood of God, we do it with this caveat that we constantly fail. And um, let me use the illustration of how it works in, in a biological family, just because I think it makes this principle very well known. But every time I, as a father, respond to my own sin, I teach my children how to respond to their sin. And so if what I manifest is self-justification and excuses not only will they be frustrated because they can see my sin just as well as I can, um, but also they will develop those patterns. I recognized a few years ago that a lot of the frustrations I have in my oldest son um, are frustrations I have about myself. If you've talked with Logan at any point, he usually starts a conversation without recognizing there's anyone standing in front of him, except for the fact that they have ears. He's interested in what interests him, and he needs a place to share that information. But conversation is not something that comes naturally to Logan. Interest in other people is not something that naturally comes to Logan. Um, and as I was trying to coach him through these things, I had this epiphany that, that those are areas where I'm still growing now. And where this epiphany broke my heart was I realized that if I don't make any progress in this, then he starts from the same place I did. And so, what this looks like for all of us then is um, is recognizing, for starters, that our particular sin issues, known or unknown, are not merely about us. Abraham lies about his wife being his sister on multiple occasions before Isaac is ever born, and then Isaac does the same thing. Isaac, um, you know, follows in his footsteps, and then Jacob comes along and he deceives Isaac. 
Jacob's sons deceive Jacob, right? And tell him that Joseph is dead. And then Judah. Judah, his fourthborn, is deceived uh, by his daughter-in-law in the context of his marriage. This deception ripples through as a generational sin. And it's not until Judah deals with it, owns up to it, and changes who he is, steps out in the light, uh, that, that the pattern is broken. And this isn't just true of the community we call family. This is true of the community we call church. And so, so the idea here of imitation involves a couple of things once again. One, we have to be examples worth imitating. We have to recognize that life is to be lived with an audience and that we have a commitment to those around us, those we would call sons, younger brothers, however you'd see it, um, to, to lead by example. Um, second, we have to give them a front row seat. There has to be a closeness in relationship. If you're younger and you can't see yourself in the father role, you need to insert yourself into the lives of men you respect. You have to have the difficult conversations and make the big ask. Um, <clears throat> because it's, it's part of how this looks. But there is one more component, and as you can imagine how these things interrelate, so does this last one. This last one's in the book of Philippians. <coughs> this is in Philippians chapter 2. says in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, <coughs> for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But listen to this. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he served with me in the gospel. And so once again, he draws attention to this relationship. Um, but there's some differences that are worth pointing out here. Paul sees this relationship in the other two passages very broadly, with the whole church that he planted and pastored, with his unique relationship among other teachers and preachers with the church in Corinth. But here he's talking about his relationship with a single man. Um, Timothy was one of a small group of men who regularly traveled with Paul. People like Epaphroditus, people like um, Timothy and Titus um, who he was actively discipling and it's interesting to follow this story all the way through when you find Timothy originally you find him as a fresh convert with a Jewish background both through his mother and his grandmother and a Greek father who it appears never became a Christian and Paul meets him on one occasion when he comes back through he takes him with him and then he travels with him Later on in Paul's ministry, Paul begins to send Timothy out to take care of issues so that Paul can be two places in one, at one time. Here with the Philippians, he's sending him for that reason. And in 1 Timothy, it's Timothy who's been sent to raise up elders in the church of Ephesus and to take care of some issues. And so you watch both as Paul um, 
raises up and sends out Timothy, and you can see how this relationship plays plays out over time. But the other difference I want to point out here is that the emphasis here is not on Paul's fatherhood, but on Timothy's sonship. Do you see that? Here he's commending Timothy for being uniquely a son. He's proven his worth, how as a son he served with me in the gospel. And so <clears throat> there's a recognition here um, of how close their relationship with uh, relationship is, but it's this with me aspect that I want to emphasize. I've already touched on on the idea of example, but when he says serve with me, it implies togetherness. If you do have biological children, um, one very clear application of this is to bring them with you into ministry. And so I would like, ideally, someday to be a church where, uh, where the ushers in our church on occasion have kids with them. Um, it was very common for Logan in the early days of our church to help me hand out the bulletins. That wasn't necessarily anything that I can you know, pin to my uh, Boy Scout vest um, because he wanted to do it. But the principle is the same. The idea here is the togetherness of service. Like I said, that was built into Jesus' ministry. It wasn't just, come see how I do things. It was, come be with me. And so it was a lot more, um, a lot more than these things. But but this is something that I've learned in pastoral ministry. And it's worth remembering again that there's an overlap here, that frankly, no pastor who doesn't disciple is a pastor, one. That fatherhood and pastorhood are correlated. So with that being said, um, it was very common in the church that I was trained up in for the pastor in the office next to me to get a call uh, for a hospital visit and knock on my door and say, hey, come on, we're going to the hospital. And I can't tell you how helpful that was just because I would have been terrified to do it if I'd never had the opportunity. Um, and and once again, I know these are very very obvious illustrations, but the idea here um, of of father and son involves involves deep relationship, uh, and specifically deep relationships in the context of service. We need to find ways as, as men in the church to serve together. Those of you who are older and can resonate with the fatherhood role, you need to recognize when the things you're doing are a good opportunity to bring other people in. I just want to point out that for us, and I don't think it's just our paradigm of manhood, I, I think it has to do with this technological society that, that roles for us now are about, uh, about skills and workload instead of about relationship. And so the way we identify ourselves is what we do for a living. And even when we talk about pastor or father, we tend to, leave, we tend to think, okay, what, what's the job list? What's the job description for a father? That's not really how the Bible thinks about these things. It's how are you connected with the people around you that defines a father. And so, um, so we need to we need to recognize when the things that we're doing are good opportunities to bring other men alongside us and just call them up. This is another thing that I experienced from my dad. Um, I still don't know why he did this, uh, but it was a common characteristic when my dad was working for the country club that when the alarm would go off at the country club, which is about 25 minutes away from our home, whatever time of night it was, he would wake me up, and we would go and check it out together. 
Um, and knowing who I am and being my father's son, I actually think one part of that one part of that is that we don't like to do things alone. And so I think he woke me up because he had somebody to go with him. I think that's part of it. Um, but not only was that tremendously meaningful to me as as an 11-year-old boy, because let's be honest, I knew just as well as anybody that I wasn't necessarily an asset in whatever was going to go down uh, when when we got there. Um, and so, so, of course, the time with Dad was part of it. But it also ingrained in me a sense of responsibility. And the truth is, for years, I've wondered why when I lock down buildings, I do so in the dark. Um, why I'm, I'm not bothered by these types of things. But it's because, because it's, it's status quo. This is just who I am. This is what we do as men. And, um, and so, so here's, here's what I'm envisioning then for, for us as a community of men in this church. It's not just that we should be servants although that is true. It's not just that we have a ministry that God is calling us to that we should be faithful to, although that is true. It's that we should be doing these things together. It's that we should be serving together. And I know that resonates inherently with men because it's the message behind every great man movie. Right? There's a reason why Band of Brothers has become not just the title of a film series, but also the title of almost every men's ministry in America. <laughs> right? It's because we, we get this, and, and camaraderie is built into what it is, but it's not just about friendship. Uh, it's, it's about the commitment we have as a community of men to one another, this father-son relationship that is constantly being manifest and, and perpetuated. Um, in the Bible as a model of ministry. So, in summary, Paul sees fatherhood in three characteristics, um, and they all relate to the world that he comes from, but they apply to us. And the first is that he sees himself as having a verbal relationship of encouragement, of exhortation, and charging those he sees as his children. Uh, Second, that he lives an exemplary life and gives people a front row to it and calls them to imitate. And then lastly, he, um, he sees serving Jesus as a team effort and employs people not because they're a good fit for the team, not because they're able or capable or competent, but specifically because he wants to disciple them. And so that's, that's the heart that I have for the men in our church And we don't do things like this very often because I don't think things like this can accomplish these things. I think if you were to try and pursue these types of relationships within our church, the best place to begin looking is in the context of home groups. And the reason we're always pushing things onto that particular plate is because you get the added benefits of everything else. And so you could meet with some men for prayer and with your home group to discuss the sermon, and with your home group to serve, with your home group to relate to people who aren't men, and that's all true. But when you do it together, all of these things just overlap. There's exponential value in that. And you don't just need good teaching on what it means to be a man or, or the best book. You need to be in the lives of, and you need men in your life. Um, that's that's how this is supposed to work. And so for those of us who, who recognize, um, recognize that we, um, 
like it or not, because I'll I'll just point out to you that um, a lot of times fatherhood isn't earned. Uh, who like it or not are in this in this context where there are people in our lives who we need to see as sons. Um, you know, this is this is something we should aspire to. And for those of us who who feel our youthfulness, our immaturity, have questions about what true masculinity is, feel deficient because of our background. Um, this is what the solution looks like. It, it, it doesn't look like some sort of supplement that doesn't involve men. Um, what, what we need to be as a church, like I said, is the, is, is the family as God intended. And so we should see each other as, as brothers and those of us who are older as fathers those of us who are younger as sons, and we should pursue these relationships. Let's um, let's pray, and then we'll we'll sing some more. Father, for me, things like this have always been overwhelming because they resonate with me, but my deficiencies and weakness seem to render me as um, disqualified for this. And I think there's this tendency uh, to, to settle for these things being good and true for other people but not available for me. There's this tendency to think that um, this role of, of fatherhood is something that I have to somehow earn, and when I get my crap together, then, then I can actually be of benefit to other men. Um, but there's two really glorious truths that I just want to hold on to as we close. Two things you proclaim. One is that you are our Heavenly Father. And we're not just called to be fathers, but we're also already inherently in Jesus Christ, your sons. And so you, you know that we're a work in progress and you're calling us deeper into these things. Um, but we, we need to rest in our sonship this morning before we recognize our calling as fathers. The second thing that I find encouraging in the way that you built it, Lord, is, um, is that we don't have to do this alone. And we may all be weak, we may all be sinful, but we're not all weak and sinful in the same way. And so when we pursue something like this together, collectively, Lord, there's a, a balancing of, of weaknesses. <coughs> Lord, we're, we're truly stronger together than we are as individuals apart. And so I pray, Lord, that you would develop in our church... Um, deep relationships between the men, um, relationships not just of friendship or of hobbies, not just <coughs> of <coughs> pleasure and free time, but, but relationships of family, relationships of co-workers and co-laborers in the gospel, relationships of fathers knowing that their sons will become fathers and helping them to succeed in that way. I just ask that by the power of your spirit, uh, Lord, you would do this work. We ask it in your name. Amen. <coughs>